Latter-day Saint Home Educators is pleased to bring you this audio presentation recorded live during the May 2023 Home Education Conference held in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Nice to meet you all. I'm glad to see such a friendly crowd. That definitely takes the edge off. Um, we have been homeschooling for quite a while. We have nine children. Our oldest will be finishing her mission in August and she'll return to BYU-Idaho. Our next oldest has just been called to Germany-Frankfurt, Turkish speaking, and he will um, be coming back to uh, potentially BYU. He'll have his choice there. And from there on out, it's uh, driving kids different places, doing stuff. Our youngest is two years old, and um, so we're still chasing diapers a little bit, but uh, we're glad to be here to share some ideas with you, so. And we are almost done chasing diapers. It's two, he's almost three. <laughs> Welcome, well, today we, I wanna start out by asking, how many of you are the, high, the primary homeschool parent in your family? Okay, and how many of you are maybe a support parent or a grandparent? Great. Okay, it's great to have everybody, and the purpose of this class is to work on the teamwork between that primary parent and the supporting parent or grandparents. I'm gonna give you 30 seconds to turn to the person next to you and tell them what are you hoping to get out of this class, or the person behind you if you need to spin or something. 30 seconds. Okay, let's bring it back together. And uh, can I have some people volunteer what you just shared? Is anyone willing to share with the whole group what you just shared that you're hoping to get out of this class. Anyone? Tips and tricks. Tips and tricks, great. Perspective. Perspective, great. Anybody else? Okay, good. So you've come to the right place for those things. Anyone who is coming for astrophysics, wrong place. This is the wrong room <laughs> for something that academic. We're gonna start with a little activity. And I need two volunteers. And I'm gonna bring this with me so that can hear what well, that recording people can hear what's going to happen I need two volunteers who know each other well enough I was hoping we'd have a mom and dad but I don't see any mom and dad okay there come on go. come on up we've got two sisters okay okay now here's what you're going to do on the floor there are some pieces of tape and they look like the shape of a V and we are going to pretend that they are a tightrope that is hung between three trees, it's forming a V. But I couldn't get any trees in here, so. My daughter has a, a slack line. Okay, so yes, yeah, so it's like a slack line, right? <laughs> and what you have to do, you're gonna start here on the narrow part of the V, and you're gonna stand here, and you can only touch the flat part of your hands. You cannot grasp, and you have to remain holding, pushing on each other while you slide toward the far end of the V, okay? <laughs> so, pick your That's side, interesting. and let's okay. see how this goes. Okay, you have, oh, you have the, the envelope. Yeah, yeah okay. it, or you'll fall to your peril. We don't want any accidents. <laughs> okay. <I'll see. laughs> okay. 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 Now this activity is something that our youth did at a at a ropes course years ago, probably over a decade ago. And it, it just always stands out in my mind because as I watch those youth do it, the trick is you have to lean into each other. 
And we had two youth who actually got all the way to the end, two, two young men, both very tall, and they were near, nearly horizontal. Their bodies were nearly horizontal. And I remember one of the boys yelling to the other boy, put pressure on me, put pressure on me. And that's really the trick. You have to be putting pressure on each other. And I think often of this analogy when I think of our marriages and our homeschools because we have to be working together and it takes pressure onto each other. So today we are going to talk about how to use that pressure to our advantage. You know that the proclamation on the family tells us that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God. Our marriages are the foundation of our family. You cannot have a strong homeschool if you have a rocky marriage. It's just an unsteady foundation and you need to keep that very strong. In 2003, there was a general conference talk that I love about marriage and it was F. Burton Howard and he told a story about how when they were first married, he and his wife registered to get real silver silverware and they didn't get very much for their wedding. They didn't even get enough to, to use for dinner. And over the years, anytime his wife had a little bit of money, she would buy more silverware. And they, he, she made him buy a tarnish-free cloth and wrap it in the cloth and hide it under the bed so no one would steal it. And then when they finally had enough to serve their friends, they would bring it out. Sometimes, not for every friend, their friends were evaluated. Their friends didn't know they were. They, only for the specialist occasions they would bring out the silverware. It never went to potlucks. It never went with meals that were given to other people. It just always was kept so carefully. And he said, at first I thought my wife was a little batty. And then I realized that she actually knew something very important. If you want something to last forever, you treat it differently. You shield it and protect it. You never abuse it. You don't expose it to the elements. You don't make it common or ordinary. If it ever becomes tarnished, you lovingly polish it until it gleams like new. It becomes special because you have made it so, and it grows more beautiful and precious as time goes by. Eternal marriage is just like that. We need to treat it just that way. So we're gonna talk about some of the things we can do to build a strong marriage. I know you probably know these already, but I think it's good to have a reminder, and maybe there's one or two that you think, oh, maybe a little more effort in that particular one could yield some fruit for our family. The first th important thing for a really strong marriage is to have really strong individuals. And it takes, as an adult, I'm always telling my kids, when you become an adult, you have to take care of yourself. There's nobody there to take care of you. You have to take care of yourself. But as spouses, we have to give each other the time and space and support to have that self-care. Exercise, reading our scriptures, having a night out for mom so she's not always with the kids, having a night in for dad if he's been at work all day. And, and we have to embrace our differences in the way we do this. Patrick and I get along very well, but he is very introverted and I am very extroverted. So sometimes he used to tell me, Lisa, take a night out, go right now. And I'd be like, like, like by myself? <laughs> go out by myself? That sounds terrible. And he thought he was giving a gift, but it wasn't the gift I needed. And I would tell him, go out with friends. And he's like, oh, come on, I've been with people all day, let me stay home. It took us a long time to kind of get that, accept those differences. Daily scriptures as a couple. This is a game changer for us. We have had, we tried for so many years on and off, trying different things, 
it takes time to figure out what works for you as a study plan. But if you will read the scriptures together as a couple every single day, you will find more unity than you can imagine. It's enough of a game changer that we really don't miss a day because it helps, helps us get through some of those bumps together. Date night. This is the gift that keeps on giving. I sometimes tell my kids when we go on dates, I am letting you know right now that your dad and I are not going to get divorced. You are safe. Our family is safe because we are going to put the effort into having a date. I don't have any friends who have gotten divorced who have told me, you know, we went out on a date every Friday night and it still just didn't work out. It just doesn't happen. If you just put this protection on your marriage, you will, you will just stay strong together. Of course, we need good, healthy communication. And communication is a skill that we can learn. Here are four particularly helpful communication tools that our family likes. First, say the words, I forgive you, when someone says they're sorry. A lot of times, culturally, if someone says sorry, we say, it's okay, it's no big deal, no problem. Try saying the words, I forgive you. Our Savior Jesus Christ paid the price for all of our sins, and when we use his word and we forgive people, it changes us. It use it for some reason, it just changes the whole situation. Second, state your expectations clearly. Let your spouse and your children know what it is you're expecting and what it is that you want, what it is that you need. Sometimes it takes some reflection to figure out what exactly it is that you are expecting. What are the subconscious thoughts that are going into your actions and behaviors? But take some time to communicate those clearly. Third, reflective listening. I'm sure you're all familiar with this one. Sometimes I think we talk about it a lot, but do we remember to restate the other person's opinions after someone has shared a concern and validate their emotions and let them know that we're really listening, asking follow-up questions? Fourth, using I feel statements. When you're trying to state something that's uncomfortable or difficult, stating it with an I feel statement lets the person know how you feel and what your perspective is without it becoming accusatory the way a you statement can sometimes become. Now, if your communication breaks down, I highly recommend therapy, whether as an, in, an individual or a couple. Our family is trying to personally keep a a therapist constantly in business through our entire lifetimes. <laughs> it's, it's just an ongoing part of our medical care. Same as we keep a doctor and a dentist on hand, we always try to have a therapist available to us. And sometimes people ask, well, I don't have a therapist. What's the best place to start? In my opinion, the best therapist is the one who can get you in because some seems like sometimes they have a really long waiting period or they don't meet your insurance. So once you figure out somebody, start there. And if you don't like them, then try somebody else. But the really important thing is to get started with that professional help. Um, for about 25 years, I suffered with chronic depression, and I'm now over eight years without it, thanks to the help of therapists. But that first step of standing up for yourself and, and going into a therapist can be really scary, but it's that getting that professional help is really, really pivotal. And the icing on the cake, gratitude. Sometimes it is so easy to take for granted the people who are in our life, the people who do so much for us, that are 
that we that we just get used to it and we start thinking we deserve that we're entitled to that we expect that and we forget to to express our gratitude and let them know how important they are to us in 2020 in in right before thanksgiving president nelson gave a devotional about gratitude if you need to improve your skill of gratitude i highly recommend you go back to that devotional and re-watch it and try the challenges again that he gave in that devotional and start there he did not ask you to keep a gratitude journal which is also a really good habit every night write down a couple of things or 10 things that you're grateful for many years ago we had a, some friends who had an argument and the the woman got very angry and she said to her husband you just take it for granted that your socks just show up folded in your drawer. It's like you have a magic sock drawer. And he said, and you just take it for granted that you have a magic bank account that just keeps filling itself. And she said, oh, I don't think I'm going to mention those socks again. And But Patrick and I have laughed about that story for many years because it's so easy to become ungrateful for the things that are that we that my bank account continues to fill and my sock drawer continues to fill and there's batteries in the battery box, whatever it is. And our, that conscious gratitude goes a long way. Awesome. I am very grateful for homeschool and um, for the opportunity to talk to you today. I hope to share a few ideas that might be helpful. Um, just for the record, I fold the socks also. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what to expect when your wife is expecting to homeschool. So these can both be um, big changes in your life. Homeschool is, um, I am very grateful for, for it because I have learned tremendously with my children. I've learned growing with them. I have learned from the courses they have to take, from grading their materials, from trying to take on an extra course for my wife, um, and then actually taking on a course, and then um, working with my kids and learning with them. And it has helped me to be grateful for all the work that she does. And it's made me grateful for um, my children and this opportunity that they have. Um, public education was not a positive experience for me. I started out in uh, the special ed area, learned to read much later. I don't think things went uphill from there. So um, we'll just call it that. Um, Luis and I have very different backgrounds. Um, and she, at one point, we had to get rid of all of her trophies for speaking. So speaking was a natural thing that she pushed very hard on and did very good at it is very uh, noted in that area. I'm going to talk to you about a couple of things. I want to talk about um, defining your educational values. I want to talk about problem solving. I'm going to talk also a little bit about paying the price. And then I want to talk about enjoying the benefits of all of this. So in terms of defining your educational values, I want you guys to think about what's important what's not important, what do you want to avoid, and what do you want to emphasize? Sorry, closer to the mic. I'm a low talker too. So um, when you think about these things, um, Peter Drucker, as a management person, he wrote an influential book for me. It was called The Effective Executive. And in that book, he talked about identifying, putting first things first. And that meant um, determining what your values were. You had to have your priorities, but you also had to have what he called A priorities, things you weren't going to do anymore, things you would take off your list. You can't have everything be important and still be successful. Um, 
another author I read pointed out that if you have a value-driven perspective and you have a measurement for those values, it makes it very easy to make some decisions and what to push forward on. And one of uh, a phrase I think Louisa picked it up here, she would say, is that we do homeschooling for what's not in it. That is, we, we, we don't, we, we like, that is, it's, if you compare homeschooling to public schooling, um, homeschooling doesn't have certain things. And those certain things are, are value, so, to some degree, value-driven ideas for us. I want you to think about um, what are the skills you've gained through your education? What were translatable and transferable? What are those skills that you still carry with you? And, and one important thing is how did you get them? Because some of the most important skills we didn't get in school. I didn't get in school. I got through young men's activities or through an influential mentor. Um, and so when you're thinking about your value and educational value, think about those skills that you want to, to have and push to your children. Um, gonna, who inspired you as a student and why? These are discussions you should have with your spouse. As, as, the, the, as you're thinking about homeschooling, what is it that you want, what type of teacher do you want to be? What type of support do you want to be? I, as I think about being a student, one of my uh, best teachers was my father. I would go to public school, come home with an idea, and he would say, that's nonsense. Have you thought about that more? That, that doesn't really make sense. Consider this. He was kind of old school, so he would debunk some of the theories. Later in life, in high school, one of my most uh, influential teachers was uh, my French teacher. For whatever reason, he put up with me taking French four years. I can tell you I don't speak French in French, but that's about as far as I've gone. Somehow he, he put up with me continuing and was just a positive, nice person. Um, I think it's important to discuss some of your negative experiences with education too. Because sometimes you want to draw out those values, those negative things that, that are taught elsewhere that you don't want to have. For example, rote learning over um, how it's tied in, right? You, you just don't learn things to learn things and you don't just learn them over and over. Um, there's also an idea of how do you make it, is it overly theoretical or is it applicable to the real world? How do you, how do you tie those in? So I would propose you think about those things as you talk about what's going to be underlying your homeschool, uh, what are the values you're driving at. And if you have a metric to measure those, you will then know if you're being successful. I want to talk about solving problems and hopefully in this section I can save you tens of thousands of dollars in master's degrees of public policy. Okay, um, I took a degree in public policy and um, well, well, we'll abbreviate it. I could read, I guess, there, there's a, a really short kind of thing, well not short, but what a key book and I'll, I'll share the, the citation, but Eugene Bardock has an eightfold path. And you define the problem, you assemble some evidence, construct some alternatives, and by selecting the criteria, you're probably asleep. But um, in terms of solving problems, I, one of my favorite problem-solving people, authors I've read about, I actually came across while teaching homeschool with my kids, and he, his name is Edward de Bono. And Edward de Bono helps you to think about problems. In fact, he came up with a whole public school curriculum that was used in New Zealand called lateral thinking. Some of you may have heard of that. But if you get his book, How Teaching Your Child How to Think, actually it'll help you a lot and get you ready for those teenagers. Um, 
it helps you think about how to break an idea down, how to consider other people's values, and how to pull that back in. Um, and my favorite book of his is called The Six Hats of Thinking, which includes emotional aspects into your decision making, which isn't very common at all. In fact, in all of my schooling, I've never had uh, a public policy book on the emotions of making a decision, right? Uh, they throw in the politics of it, but not the emotions. And when we ignore the emotional aspect, we ignore some of the gut thinking that goes on. Um, so when you're thinking about solving problems, Louisa mentioned communication, and that's key in a parent-teacher conference. And what I'll say is you should talk regularly, find out how the kids are doing, but I'm, I'm gonna go back to the not doing. Also, set it down sometimes. Homeschooling can be all-encompassing. It will pull in the, the main teacher's life entirely into it, and you need to be able to set it down just like you have to set down your professional job. You can't just talk about your work all day. And you have to have space to set it down and say, we're, not, we're actually not talking about homeschool, right? And that will allow you to be more focused when you do talk about it, to aim at the key decisions and discussions you need to have. You also need to um, recognize venting versus wanting a solution. This is key. Um, you can't get to problem solving until you've gotten past validation. So you need to be able to listen and understand what's going on. And when you understand what's going on, um, that makes it easier for you to then mutually and jointly think about solving a problem. Or also just giving the reassurance that she's very smart and capable and most of the time solves all of her own problems anyway. You may just be the brainstormer and she actually goes in a completely different direction. Sometimes that happens. Um, and what's most important, I think, about solving problems is talking her off the school bus. Sometimes that yellow bus goes by our house every day. It's always driving by. It doesn't know that it's advertising, but it's always advertising. There's a different place to put your kids. And I think it's key to instill a confidence that um, homeschooling is as good as public school, if not better, based on a single criteria that the teacher in this instance absolutely loves the children and has a desire for their growth and, and um, development over time. Um, so it's important when you're doing that, um, I guess the next step I want to talk about is like when you're doing comparisons, if you compare across children, well, you know, Johnny's very good at this and Joey's not. And, you know, that's really a, a difficult comparison to make. Comparing Johnny to who Johnny was last year is a better way to go, did Johnny learn this new skill? When we were in the Netherlands, our daughter did uh, public school there one year and the children would graduate to the next class on their own, individually. The classes didn't graduate, the child graduated. And when the kid could show that they knew how to wash their hands, hang up their coat, do other socially appropriate things, they would move up to the next level. And that's how you knew the comparison was the child and not the group. Um, and then one important thing I've learned um, from my experience as a manager in federal government is you want to differentiate between performance and conduct. So performance is usually a capability issue. Can the child do this? Can they accomplish it? Have they been trained? Do they know how to do it? They're not performing well, why not? If the problem on performance is attitude, it's actually not a performance problem. It's a conduct problem, that's behavioral. And in the federal government, every agency has what's called a table of penalties. And it lists the behavior that's inappropriate 
and it lists the penalty that goes along with that so you treat everybody fairly. So if somebody comes in and starts stealing, the penalty is identified there. They were caught with stuff, they were stealing, the penalty is a reprimand on the first instance. By the third instance, it's usually termination or a severe penalty, taking their money for two weeks, uh, suspending them, something like that. And so you want to be able to ask that first question if there's a problem with the child's behavior. And then dealing with outside criticisms really is a matter of reassurance. Um, I think about some of the outside criticisms that come against homeschool about socialization. And when I watch the videos on YouTube about public school, the ones that get viral, usually that's not the socialization I want my kids to have anyway. So I, there's, a, there's a lot of reassurance about you have to wait over time to see kind of the outcome sometimes. And I think that as we've done this with all of our children and we've seen that they make it into college, they make it to missions, they make friends, they're out in public, they, they do well at jobs, they get invited back to jobs because they're hard workers. These are all telltale signs that come later. When they're younger, it's really hard to see if they're in diapers, are they gonna make it? That's a hard thing. Um, but I can tell you that instilling the confidence that the teacher loves their child and wants them to grow and learn will make all the difference. They won't want that teacher to be let down. Just so you know, it costs money to homeschool. Sometimes a lot of money and sometimes a lot of time. Um, I have, in my, from my perspective, um, it's, it, it was always, if you're monetary about some things, if you go back to your values and money is your value, um, then maybe homeschool isn't for you because it will cost. It, it'll cost time and money. But if, if you look at it, um, I would flip that on you a little bit from a cost-benefit analysis and say, maybe it's cheaper to homeschool too if they don't end up in your basement in the long run, right? <laughs> so I, I would have you think about it uh, in terms of long run issues. And I would have you think about, um, I've had to spend time with my children learning things and that time always paid dividends to me. I did not learn until after two master's degrees that there are actually only five types of sentences in the English language. I did not, I don't know why. I mean, that was none of my schooling that there are only five types of sentences. But sitting down with my ninth grader and going through an exceptionally valuable course, I learned that. And that has saved me a lot of time and actually uh, benefited me a lot in my um, career. And, oops, sorry. Um, and so you're gonna have to live on a budget and you're gonna have to do things differently. You're gonna have to help. You're gonna have to schedule your time and you're gonna have to look at how, how things work out. Um, I, I wanted to think, I want you to think about the movie The Sound of Music. Has anybody not seen The Sound of Music? Okay, Does, everybody knows what her job was, right? She was a governess. A governess, by the way, when you look it up, is not a housekeeper. A governess is not the cook. A governess does not do the laundry. A governess may be creative and cut the curtains up and make some clothes, right? Um, but overall, when you think about that story and what a governess did, she was there for the educational growth and development of those children. And by focusing on that, it really makes it a full-time job. And you need to think about it in that way. And Louisa will talk more on that, but there needs to be balance in the housework, which is why I get to fold the socks. I love socks.
Actually, Luisa will tell you I hate socks, and I do. But, um, but other things. I love folding blankets. That's a lot done with a couple folds. Socks, they're just individual. Um, as you, um, I want to highlight enjoying the benefits. So homeschool is work. But nothing worthwhile ever comes about without work. It's not free. You have to put time into it. And when you do, the benefits are significant, personally and developmentally with our children. Um, you're free from rigid school schedules. You can build forts with the kids whenever you want. Well, whenever you get the time off, right, from your job. Um, and it definitely builds strong family relationships that reduce a peer emphasis. When our son turns 17, we usually give our, our children a chance, a choice from year to year. Do you want to have a party and invite friends, or do you want to have a, a date with one of your parents? And at 17, he chose a date with his mother. He chose, I'm going to go and I'm going to have this fun event with my mother. I'm going to go to DC and see the sights and do this fun stuff. You don't often get that with teenagers. But when you spend time with them and you teach them and you learn and you grow, you go through the frustrations, you go through the growth. Um, it has positive benefits. The work pays off in the long run. And I just think that when you when I think about the benefits that we have enjoyed and the things we've missed out on, things we've missed in the public school area, the trade-offs definitely benefit are, are on the side of homeschool. And I think in terms of it, she's going to talk a little bit more about socks. <laughs> we recently got a new washing machine and my kids all do their own laundry. And my nine-year-old came to me and asked if I could show him how to use the new washing machine. And I told him, your guess is as good as mine. I haven't used it because Patrick really actually does all the laundry. And this is just one example of how we have to divide the work fairly. And the, the, as I talk about this, this content comes from a book called Fair Play. It's by Eve Rodsky. And at the very end, I'm going to put up a slide with all the books that we refer to, except the ones that Patrick came up with out of his head as he was talking. And then you'll have to email me. <laughs> You just never can account for those. So anyway, um, all right, uh, this is going to be a very abbreviated version of her book. My hope is that it will save you from reading the book, but if you want to, you'll still find a lot in there if you want to read the book. The other thing is she has an exceptionally negative tone towards men, which I really disliked her tone, so I'm warning you about that in advance if you choose to read it. The, the main idea is that as we've shifted away from an agricultural society to an industrial society, the workload in a household didn't shift equitably. And so overall, the, the burden of the household chores are left to women. And the men, while still providing, don't necessarily pick up their share, the quote unquote share of those tasks. And especially for us homeschool moms, we really have to think about our homeschooling job as our full-time job. It's going to take 40 hours a week. And so now all those household tasks are left as though we had been at the office all day, he had been at the office all day, and somehow they have to be divvied out, right? And it's unfair to divide them so that only one person does all of the jobs. But unfortunately, our cultural mindset sometimes makes us divide it in, in an in a way that's not serving us. And we have to find a way to talk about that and move through that together with those good communication skills that I already mentioned. So in her book, she states a few rules that are important to understand. The first is that all time is created equal. 
So if there's a task that needs to be done, it is equal for my time to be spent doing it and his time to be spent doing it. Now that doesn't mean that there's not a comparative advantage, if you're familiar with that from economics. It's not, it's not that I'm not better or he's not better at the task itself, but it's, there's no time advantage for me doing it versus him doing it. And it took us a little while to shake this mindset because a stay-at-home mom, quote unquote, has time to run the car to the shop, has time to take the kids to the doctor, has time to run to the neighbors with a pot of soup. But if mom does all those things, it's really going to sabotage your homeschooling efforts. So we need to think about our time as equal. Second, reclaim your right to be interesting with unicorn space. What the author calls unicorn space is the sparkly fun thing that makes life worth living. And she says every individual needs to have something that they're doing that is that unicorn space. And she differentiates that it's not a consumption, it's not, but it's some, something productive. So she gives the illustration of sometimes women will go and get their nails done or their, get a pedicure. And while those are fun, relaxing, and pampering, that's not exactly what she's talking about with unicorn space. Unicorn space needs to be creative, it needs to be productive, it needs to be building you in some way. But it's a way that you love. It's a way that makes you sparkle, that makes you unique, that makes you feel like a person. And at least for me, it was entry into motherhood that made me gradually give way, give this away. And as, as a teenager, I didn't ever have to say, you know, I am going to make sure that I have time to do the things that I care about. Because everything was what I cared about. Everything was for me, right? And as a mother, we don't necessarily do that. And what the author talks about is how we have, we gradually give that permission away to be interesting, and we have to reclaim that and give ourselves permission to be interesting. And we have to grant that to each spouse and make sure that we have some time to do it. She quotes a PhD, Tova Klein, who cautions, don't let your passion be the perfection of your children because when you solely dis define yourself in relation to another, it's not enough. And I think that's a really important distinction. Third, she says, start where you are right now. That's obvious, but so important to remember. Don't try to compare to anyone else, but just wherever you are right now. And fourth, establish your values and standards. You may have to cut some things. You might have to find that some things are not essential. And if you want to take a deep dive into thinking about that, I highly recommend the book Essentialism by Greg McEwen. That's a class for another time. It's a great book. Okay, so then she takes all of the tasks that you have in your household and puts them on a card. And she makes a hundred cards, and you can actually buy a deck of her cards if you would like to. They're $22, so it's a little pricey for cards, but sometimes it's easier than making your own. Anyway, they're divided into suits, just like playing cards, of home, which would be things like cleaning, dishes, dry cleaning, hosting, money managing, out, which is things like car, kids sports, packing and unpacking for things you need to go to, planning vacations and dates, and keep, keeping the calendar, who's keeping, in charge of keeping the calendar, Caregiving, which includes things like grooming, dental, pets, self-care, and mental health. It, and she includes most of the tasks of education that a public school mom would encounter. She includes most of those as caregiving, helping with homework, buying supplies, things like that. So obviously you're going to have to tweak this a little bit for homeschooling because it's not exactly those categories. 
but that's where she puts them is a part of caregiving. Magic, which is the, uh, the, the suit of magic, is things like friendships, relationships with extended family, birthday parties, magical, making, making birthdays magical. And then the wild category is things like things that come up that rock your boat. An ailing parent, a death in the family, the first year of an infant's life. That one should count for two, right? <laughs> <laughs> a home renovation, a move, a new job, an illness, a job loss, these kinds of things. And we don't, we don't typically think of having a discussion. Well, you've just lost your job. Who, which of us is going to take on the different tasks that relate to job loss, right? We don't really have that conversation. But all those tasks do have to be divvied up between one or the other spouse. And so this kind of gives you a way to talk about them. So she says about unicorn space to, to sit down and think about what are my true passions and how could I for the next six months commit to my unicorn space for the next six months? What's something I'm going to do? And if you have a public policy nerd as your spouse, you can really get wonky on this and, and spend a lot of time deciding what you're going to do. Or just go with your gut reaction and say, you know what I feel like? volunteering on an LDSHE committee for the next six months or I feel like playing on a soccer team or whatever you're interested in doing. She asks these questions. What makes me feel at least two of the following emotions? Exhilarated, content, fulfilled, or focused? And when you have identified the, something that makes you feel two of those emotions, you have found something that would be a unicorn space for you that you can invest in and then select how you're going to do it for six months and then reevaluate. You don't have to stick with it forever. Did you have a question? Yes. Exhilarated, content, fulfilled, or focused. And I want to add in here that, like I said, I struggled with chronic depression for a long time. Making sure that I have that unicorn space is probably the single most helpful strategy for keeping my mental health stable that I and I had to learn that as an adult because I didn't learn that as a kid okay so once you have these these all your tasks determined and also side note she doesn't have anything for church callings which needs six cards sometimes anyway so you may have to add in some cards to represent your situation then on each of the cards you're going to determine what's the minimum standard of care that is that is acceptable for this task and how you're going to do that is by using a reasonableness test. So you say, would a reasonable person in, in this situation, would my, is my reaction reasonable? Would somebody in our community, you can use the community standards test, would somebody in our community think this was a reasonable action? And when you think about that minimum standard of care, sometimes how I think something should be done and how Patrick thinks something should be done are two very different things. And it helps even to just use this vocabulary of asking the question, what is the minimum standard of care on this task, helps us to identify what are your expectations on this. What, one of the reasons why he does the laundry is because my minimum standard of care was sometimes wash it today, fold it on Wednesday, put it in the drawers on Saturday, and then maybe just then start over, right? And that was not his minimum standard of care. So he likes to do it because he likes it done his way and I never feel like I can meet that minimum standard of care. 
he probably has a bunch of examples where he doesn't feel like he can meet my minimum standard of care, and I'm not going to give you any chance to talk about those <laughs> right now, but, <laughs> but later <laughs> in a private conversation. <laughs> the point is talking about them. Yes, the point is talking about what are the minimum standard of care. And interestingly, um, I had an argument with somebody one time where he said, you really can't tell me what to do and how to do it. You can tell me one or the other. And I think sometimes we get into that battle, right? You can't tell me to do the laundry and how to fold it. You only get to ask me to do the laundry. Well, this gives us a chance to say, you can do the laundry however you want, but my minimum standard of care is the underwear is not on the floor. The socks are folded every week. Whatever it is that you feel is the minimum standard. And it's not, but it's without micromanaging. It's really nice. Now for each task that you have, each card, that each task, includes three steps. Conception, planning, and execution. Where we sometimes run into trouble culturally is that we, the moms, come up with an idea of something that should be done. We plan it and we execute it and we're burned out. Or we come up with the idea, we plan it, and then we say, Dad, go do this activity that I planned. And he's like, what? I do not want to do it that way. I do not want to do it. And then we start to butt heads because it was my idea and I made the plans and now he feels micromanaged. So for each of these tasks, it's really important that each person has the ownership of the start to finish product. And now that doesn't mean there can't be delegated parts, but it means that they, they have that full ownership. Sometimes you may have heard of people talk about the mental load of something. And what the author talks about in this book is that when, if jobs have shifted, sometimes the mental load has not shifted. For example, prior to, to thinking about it this way, I would make doctor's appointments, keep track of immunizations, keep track of all the paperwork the kids needed for their appointments, and then sometimes Patrick would say, well, I'd be happy to take him to that appointment. And that is helpful. But what's even more helpful is now he does all medical. I do all dental. So he took over the paperwork. He has the immunization records. He knows what forms they need for their physicals. He does all the medical instead of me carrying the mental load and him the execution load. And I think it, it's a very small tweak, just a 1% change that makes it so that the load shifts and we have a more manageable, equitable division of work around the house. Once you have all your cards figured out which ones apply to you, which ones don't, then you are going to sit down with your cards and deal them out and each person selects what jobs they're going to do. Make sure you claim your unicorn space and then manage your cards for a week and then check in and decide if, if your balance was really working. Maybe there's some that have to be shifted. And shift as many times as you want. Change it as many times as you want. You're free to change it. But make sure to have a conversation. Don't just say, oh, I hate how you're doing the laundry and take it over. Have a conversation about that. Some of the benefits we've reaped by dividing the work equitably and using this system is having a clear language for discussion and acknowledging that mental load I was talking about and shifting those entire tasks. Most importantly, it gives us an opportunity to communicate and work together. Think back to my slack line V here. When you are, when you are at the, the narrow end of the V, you, you can, anybody can do that, right? Anybody can, can lean that far, keep their balance. When you get to that far end of the V, when your bodies are horizontal and your hands are barely touching and your spouse is yelling, put pressure on me, you need some different tools, you need some more effective tools, 
And that's, that's what this has been for us, is an opportunity to make that really work better. I hope that today you have come up with some 1% changes that might help you and your family. I want to ask if you have anything to add before. I do. Okay. Oh, th that's you anyway. Yeah. I'm sorry. So hopefully um, this has been helpful to you all to talk about values, working together, problem solving, and especially communicating on how the work is going to get done. It's a lot of work. You're both full-time employee, employed when this takes place. I want to share a thought with you, though, that comes from one of my favorite management books. Um, and this is a professor who he would write this letter to students before they came to class. And I want you to think about this in terms of homeschool. You may take examinations alone or with any other person or with as many other people as you like. Other people includes classmates, parents, children, spouses, students, and other classes, professors, or hired guns. I go absolutely blind with rage if I catch anyone cheating. I define cheating as a failure to assist others on the exams if they request it. This was a professor at George Washington University. Um, when the dean found out about these letters, he quickly hauled him into class and wanted to talk to him about this. And um, through their conversation, he got pretty mad and yelled at the professor and he said, um, are you aware of the absolute chaos that would be generated at the George Washington University if everyone began to help one another? The author continues, what an extraordinary and relevant question for someone in leadership role to ask, not only about the George Washington University, but also about other organizations. To his everlasting credit, the dean immediately followed up with his pithy query with another one that was equally, if not more poignant in nature. Professor Harvey, did I just say what I think I said? I'm pretty sure you did. Professor Harvey, I believe I need to think about this issue some more on my own. Thanks for dropping by. I want you to think about homeschooling and the communication and all of the work. From the outside, it might look like you're cheating, but helping each other out and everything makes the difference. Your children will see it, they will help each other out, and it may result in chaos sometimes. But in the end, it will result in everybody being better off, learning more, and being better together. And I'd leave those thoughts with you. So. Great. Just to, can, just to summarize, build a strong marriage with self-care, scriptures, dates, communication, therapy, and gratitude. Accept the challenges of homeschool by having a united vision, solving problems, and paying the price, but also enjoy the benefits. And divide work evenly and claim your unicorn space. Do I have time to take questions or are we all done? If, if anybody has any questions, you can ask them. Sure, go ahead. How do you include, like, let's say my children have responsibilities, you know, chores around the house. Like, how do you include that with the cards? With the cards. Really yeah. good question. <laughs> okay, how do, the question is how do you include children in the division of cards? Go ahead. So, um, delegate. I don't have to take the trash out. I don't wash all my kids' clothes. I wash our clothes, and I wash kids who cannot wash their own clothes. So is, is one of you just like in charge of yep. making sure that that happens? So yes. if I'm in yes. charge of laundry, I make sure the kids have a schedule of when they get the washing machine. There's a schedule set up. They wash. They move their own clothes along. And then sometimes things come up. We help each other. We'll help move clothes along, but we'll let them know, here's the basket of clothes. I've trained the kids on how I like clothes folded. Uh, Marie Kondo, for any of you out there. <laughs> uh, and um, so they know how to do it. 
they don't always do it, but when I tell them I'm inspecting their dressers, they know what, what's expected. So and delegation and then follow up and accountability. And in general, the person who has that card d delegates, but some of them we've had a separate card for, who is the person who is going to have the card of making a chore chart that everyone can follow, right? And so you can do it kind of either way, depends on, go ahead. I was wondering if you'd be willing to share that fantastic resource that taught your freshmen that there are five types of sentences. Oh, absolutely. I will, uh, That's analytical grammar, Yeah, mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. I still go back to it. Um, when I did a detail at Office of Management and Budget where they review regulations for all of government, best thing I ever did was had analytical grammar. I just was teaching and I could pin right through those regulations and go, here's what they're saying, here's the issues, go back and forth. The analytical grammar, absolutely love it. And here's the slide I promised you with the references of uh, a lot of the books that we talked about. I would say all of them. Most of them. Most of them. Most. I, I would add <laughs> that um, Analytical grammar is also exceptionally helpful with scripture study. It is very fun to diagram the Book of Mormon and go, here's the actual gist of what they're saying. And also, our missionary, who, about to be missionary who's studying Turkish, told me the other day, I have a really easy time in the language lessons because I have such a good grasp of grammar. And I thought, thank you. Thank you, analytical grammar. Any other questions? Oh, was that part of that? Anything else? Okay. Well, here's our contact information. If you need to reach out to us, we'd love to talk to you, answer any questions, chat about anything homeschool. Thank you for coming. It means so much to us that with all the many things you could choose to do today, you chose to be here with us. Thank you for coming. Latter-day Saint Home Educators is a nonprofit, all-volunteer organization dedicated to providing inspiration to homeschool families. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you are interested in listening to more recordings or would like to participate in a future conference, please visit our website at ldshe.org.